Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the Old Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Paul Jones. 2.2, what's the problem? Well, welcome back to another Trinity on Tap podcast. I mentioned in the previous one that Genesis 1 doesn't offer a very helpful scientific account of creation. And did that bother us? No, it doesn't, because uh, Genesis 1 wasn't designed to do that. It wasn't written to make progress in science, in spite of the fact that some people continue to read it that way. Now, I, I think I mentioned that I'm not upset if a maths equation doesn't help me with the meaning of life, because that's not what I expect from that literary form. And I'm not upset when the shopping list on the fridge doesn't contain rhymes or rich symbolism, because that's not what I expect from that literary form. Uh, in the same way, I'm not upset that Genesis 1 doesn't match up with the latest scientific theories about how the world came into being because, as we've seen, it contains enough poetic elements for me to recognise that it's a theological statement about God's relationship to the world, not an historical account of the first six days. It's also, I mean, excuse me for being blunt, but it's also a bit arrogant for us to sometimes expect that something that was written thousands of years ago is going to be speaking to the, the needs of today, the things that we look for in literature. Of course it wasn't written that way. It was written to an audience 3,000 years ago that had very different things on their mind. And certainly scientific progress and evolution and creation, Big Bang theories, were not on their radar. So this whole concept probably sounds simple enough for us to grasp, and I hope it does, in other words, the argument that I'm making here, in its simplest form, is this. If we give some thought to the literary form of Genesis 1, that is, if we stop assuming that it presents us with scientific information about the world's origins, then we can stop setting up science and faith as polar opposites. Instead, we can hold them together quite happily, as, of course, I, I think we must. Science and faith are not competing with one another. Science answers our how questions, and faith is all about why, right? You can answer all your how questions and still want to know why you're here. So if it's that simple, why does this continue to be an ongoing problem? Why is it so hard for people to acknowledge that Genesis 1 might not be history? Well, a large part of the problem, at least as I've encountered it, is that in the church there's this widespread conviction that for something to be true... It has to be historical. It has to have really happened. So let's just take a minute on that. Because if you're already a Bible reader, you've probably encountered stories like the prodigal son or the good Samaritan, stories that Jesus told. But if a text has to be historical to be true, then Jesus was telling fibs when he told those stories, right? Because they're parables. Parables are made up. They're stories with a point, but they're made up stories. They don't depend on real historical figures. You don't have to have a real historical prodigal son or an actual good Samaritan for those stories to make their point. Because their purpose is not to communicate historical truth, but theological truth. Truth about the nature of God's character or truth about how his people ought to treat each other. And we use this principle all the time when we read. Psalm 98 verse 8 says, let the floods clap their hands. Isaiah 55, 12 says, All the trees 
will clap their hands. Now, was the ancient world a strange place where floods and trees had hands and could clap them, or where mountains and hills could sing? Of course not. We know we're reading poetry, so we adjust where we look for meaning in those words. Another example, a bit silly, but if I'm out of the town for a weekend doing some teaching somewhere and my wife calls and she says, oh, Paul, how I miss you. My heart is aching. It's going to burst. Do I hang up on her immediately and call an ambulance because her heart is aching and I'm concerned that she might have a heart attack? No, of course not. Although if she starts talking like that, Maybe she does need a hospital. But you see, we're familiar with different genres, right, in daily life. And it's the same with the Bible. When I read a law, I know it's a command. It's going to be telling me to do something. If I read a proverb, I know it's describing how life works in some way. When I read a narrative, I look for other things to make sense of plot or characters or dialogue. When I read a dream, I know that it's very symbolic. So when Genesis 1 clashes with science in the obvious ways that it does, which I've already pointed out, why do people cling to Genesis 1 as history or science? Well, I think there are a few reasons for that. First of all, for some reason, and I'm not sure if I understand this fully, but we don't seem to apply our sophisticated ways of thinking to the Bible, right? It's, It's like we go to church and we we leave our brain at the door sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. When I went to study at Durham Uni, uh, I was fascinated that they had just begun this new course on Harry Potter, right? So a graduate level higher education course on Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling's books. And as I looked at that, I thought, wow, the people are studying at this level how this literature works, they're comparing the educational systems in the books to educational systems in the real world and so on. And it just reinforced to me how strange it is that we do leave our brains sometimes at the door when we go to church or when we read the Bible. We just expect when we open this book, everything in it is just the same stuff and we don't think about what we're reading. The second reason is because sometimes we're not sure where to stop in identifying literary forms and genres. Now, some of you may have thought of this, I think, as I was talking through that last section. If I call Genesis 1 a poem, why wouldn't I then call Exodus 1 to 10 a poem, right, and say that the Exodus might not have happened? Or what would stop me from going to the Gospels and saying, all this stuff is symbolic as well, and, you know, Jesus wasn't a real person, and the things he said weren't real as well. So some people, I think, are worried that If you're going to say Genesis 1 is poetic or symbolic or parabolic, then how do I know you're not just going to apply that to the whole Bible and then we lose the whole historical element? Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, well, Christian faith kind of stands or falls on that. So we do need to be able to say, I'm drawing the line here or there. How do we do that? Well, we identify the genre and often it's just from using its own cues. That's why I was very careful to show you that Genesis 1, I'm not just hypothesizing that it might be poetry. I showed you that there was structure and metaphor and symbolism and repetition and that all those things are cues that what we're reading is poetry, not just because I say so, but because the text itself makes makes that known. Third, uh, I think that we're often taught to read the Bible a certain way and we never graduate from it. Now, the next podcast will address that more directly, but it's what I hinted at previously 
when I said sometimes we hear a, a Sunday school story and we, we, that becomes the way we read that story. Noah's Ark or Jonah or creation stories. And it just stays with us for life. And for some reason, even though in all of our educational systems, we're always returning to things that we've learned previously and deepening our knowledge and it becomes more sophisticated. Think about maths, you know, one plus one is two, sure. But you're not just, that's, that's not it. You're going to deepen that uh, as you go through your education and learn more and more about how maths actually becomes more complex. Same with language. But for some reason, sometimes we, we learn to read the Bible one way and then we just think, done, sit with that for the rest of my life. So my seven-year-old, for instance, she might uh, struggle to discern, you know, reading Genesis 1 as history from gen- reading Genesis 1 as poetry. That's okay. I don't mind her starting with the concept of an ordered creation, but when she gets older and she starts to ask questions about how science works with this and how she can apply her thinking about science back to Genesis 1, I'm certainly not going to insist that she put her scientific learning aside so that she can read the Bible. No way. That would just lead her to think that she has to choose between faith and science. You know, the media loves this stuff. They, the media loves to present science and faith as polar opposites. But of course, you don't have to choose. Science and faith, as I said, they bring two really different sets of questions to the issue. All those questions are legit and they're worth asking. Uh, when I was at Durham Uni that I, I mentioned a moment ago, I got to know the Reverend Professor David Wilkinson a little bit. He's a very bright guy, two PhDs, one in astrophysics and one in theology. He's written a whole bunch of books on the relationship between those fields. And I like the way he put it. He said, once I've considered science best, science's best explanation for how the world came into being, I still have all my why questions, right? So he said, I get this sense of how the world came into being, and now I can put on my other hat, theology hat, and think about why, how and why. Two very different sets of questions about the world. Science asks, how did the Big Bang happen? What set it off? How long did it take for planets to form or for living organisms perhaps to evolve? And so on. Biblical faith, based on Genesis 1, would ask, what kind of God made this world? What kind of world did God create? Why did God create people? And is there purpose and meaning to life as we know it? And as we've seen, another really important question is, While I'm sitting here in crisis in Babylon and everything's broken around me, what can you tell me about God that will give me hope? So they're very different sets of questions and they've been conflated and just mixed together and run together for too long. Now you can find any number of podcasts that deal with those scientific questions I mentioned, but let's stick with our theme of creation. According to the Old Testament, in answer to what kind of God, we get this sort of answer. God is depicted as a God of order who makes life possible. Or God is all-powerful. He says, let there be, and there was. We ask, what about the purpose of human life? And we get answers like this. Human beings were created to reflect God's image on the earth, to take on his character, be a bit like him, treat other humans in that sort of way. Now, before we move on, there's one more detail under our heading of what's the problem, and that is the second creation account that I mentioned in the last podcast as well. 
Because when you get to chapter 2, verse 3, the first creation account ends and a second one begins. Um, the NRSV actually has a heading in it, another account of creation, kind of makes it a bit more obvious, but that's an, that's an added heading the NRSV uh, team have put in there. But you can see that the genre shifts just by reading it, whether, you're, whether or not you're a trained literary critic. But you'll see that um, the first account, which is poetic, is then followed by a second account, which is narrative in form. So let's take a quick look. Uh, Genesis 2 verse 4, it says, These are the generations of... Um, and by the way, Genesis is broken up using that phrase to introduce all of its new sections. So already we've got evidence that Genesis 1.1 to 2.3 is sort of an intro that's been tacked on to the beginning of Genesis, like a poetic introduction before you get to all the narrative accounts, because most of Genesis is narrative. Now, I noted in the last uh, podcast that there are differences between these two when you look at the order for instance, uh, of plants being created and human beings created, that there's a bit of a difference in Genesis 1 and 2. And you could go through both chapters and look at other differences. But my point is not, as I said then, that that makes either of those accounts untrue. Uh, neither of them are scientific. There's not one that's scientific and one that's not. My point is just that there are two accounts of creation which order creative events differently in order to say different things. So if you are going to insist on the ordering of events in Genesis 1, all I would ask is that you at least acknowledge that you're choosing that order over the order that's presented in the Bible in the very next chapter. People sometimes insist that God must have created the world exactly as it's depicted in Genesis 1 because the Bible says so. Well, if that is the argument, it's just worth noting that the Bible also says something else in the next chapter. Now, finally, you might be wondering, what does all this really matter? You know, does it really matter? Can't I hold one view of creation and you hold another? And yeah, that's been the case for a long time. But is it really worth all the chatter that we've invested in it in these podcasts? Personally, I think the answer to that question is absolutely. It's really important because it's really important for the way that the church engages with the world. When Christians insist on a certain way of reading Genesis 1 that conflicts with science, we have to be able to talk about it intelligently. If you can't explain your views of creation without simply saying, the Bible says so, then what you do is you give the impression that Christians are brainwashed people who believe the words of an ancient document without really thinking it through. We have to be able to talk about what we believe intelligently. And secondly, this is really important because I think it's vital, as I've been saying all along, that Christians read their Bibles and read them well. And by that, I don't mean that you should read the Bible exactly as I read it. That would be a little bit arrogant. I mean that we need to start applying the simplest rules of reading to the Bible. That's not to say that interpreting ancient laws and letters and prophecies and stories and histories in a way that makes sense of life today is just easy. Or straightforward. I recognize that there is some difficulty there, but I do believe wholeheartedly that it's worth the effort. It's life-giving. It really is. So it's worth putting in some time and some effort. And that's actually why Trinity on Tap exists, 
Trinity College Queensland decided that it's important to record these podcasts so that people can uh, find a way to think through these, these issues. We've got to learn to apply those basic rules of reading to the Bible. And in our next podcast, 2.3, that is exactly what we'll begin to do. But for now, let me leave you with a question. The question is this, when you read scripture, what unspoken rules guide your understanding? Now, that's quite a hard question to answer, I know, because the sort of rules or guidelines I'm encouraging you to think about are usually the sorts of things that you're unaware of. You know, for example, someone might assume that the New Testament has more authority than the Old without thinking about it. And that's an unspoken rule that seems to guide a lot of Christian readers, though they're not always able to explain where that principle comes from. So I'm just in, trying to encourage you to be more aware of what those principles might, might be. So have a think on this question. I'll say it again. When you read scripture, what unspoken rules guide your understanding? Catch ya. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.